Uh, if you were with us, let's see here, two Sundays ago, you know that we launched out our fifth church plant. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> One or two people are excited. That's good. And uh, the church is Christ the King, and they launched out in Virginia Village. And there was their first Sunday last week. They had a little sign there, and there's a <laughs> procession. Actually, they're warming up for the procession. They had 118 people at their first service. 118, yeah. There's a few of them. And then they had 80 people at the potluck right after, and it was so encouraging. There was somebody who came up to Jesse and said that out of the 25 years, this was the most significant, meaningful uh, service that they had ever been a part of. And uh, this was so meaningful. uh, This person said, I've never given to the church, um, but today I put $25 in. And I said, what was the person's name, Jesse? And he said, her name's Jana. So... (laughs) That's my wife. And I was just, okay. (laughs) The first part of that's true. The second part is not true. But it was just, uh, from what Jesse said, it was just an amazing time. And and I just want to say thank you so much, Wellspring, because to launch out a church and to send so many people from our uh, community was remarkable. Going through all that we've gone through over the past two years, relocating, renovating, uh, moving into this new space, and then planting a church in the midst of it was no small feat. And this community had great vision, great faith, and a great love for people who do not yet know Christ as we just spread the good news of the gospel around the city. So that plant took place in Virginia Village, and I'm just thrilled to announce that they are strong. Um, so thank you, Wellspring. Thank you for your sacrificial giving, your sacrificial prayers, and being a part of this. We're all in it. It's not that we're sending some to CTK and then we're staying. Like, we're all sent. It's not a matter of, matter of staying because we're all sent on mission. And I just want to say well done, good and faithful servants, for being obedient to the Lord's call in your life. So... Uh, We are in the midst of a sermon series called Liturgy, liturgy being our response to who God is and what he's done. And the reason why we're doing this is because we are a liturgical church, and uh, you may not know, especially if this is your first time, you've only been here a month or two, like, what exactly are we doing? Why are they doing that? And and, uh, liturgy is, is, there's aspects of the liturgy that reflect different facets of the gospel, and that's what makes it so meaningful. Uh, we had a catechism class about three years, no, longer than that, probably about five years ago. And after we went through the liturgy, I asked the class, so, so how would you describe liturgy? And one of the people in the class who was a watchmaker said that liturgy is thoughtfully assembled. It's a great definition of liturgy. It's thoughtfully assembled. And each aspect of the liturgy reflects a different facet of the gospel. But what makes it so powerful is not just the liturgy, but the gospel that it's grounded into. You know, we, we've known people who have gone to a liturgical church for years, maybe even decades, and there's still bitterness and anger and just um, comparison, greed, lust that's in their heart. And the liturgy isn't changing them. And the reason why is because in order for the liturgy to change and transform, what you need is a surrendered heart and a liturgy that's grounded in the gospel. And as we celebrate King Jesus together in the liturgy, what we have is a transformed life. But it requires us surrendering our hearts to King Jesus. And as we do, the liturgy forms us because in the liturgy, it's grounded in the gospel. So as we go through the liturgy, we're looking at different facets. And today, we're going through a part called the call to worship, 
which is at the very beginning of the service, and it's composed of two different components. The first is what's called the acclamation, and the second is the prayer of purity. Acclamation. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, The definition of acclamation is that it's a loud, enthusiastic approval. So next week, it's going to be loud, and it's going to be enthusiastic, and it's an approval, and typically to welcome or honor. Now, in the early church, according to Leander uh, Leander Harding, he, he says that the way that Christians would greet one another, especially when being a Christian was a criminal, is that they would know that another person was a Christian because you would greet one another by the sign of a cross on the forehead and on the chest. You know that person was a Christian. And that morphed into uh, later decades and later centuries. They would greet one another by saying, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. That was the response. And you know that the person was a Christian. Now that's the acclamation that we use during resurrection season. During the penitential time, Lent, we say, bless the Lord who forgives all of our sins. His mercy endures forever. But throughout the most of the year, we say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. It's the appropriate response to who God is and what he's done on our behalf. Now, as we come into the house of God, we're not primarily greeting one another. We're greeting the host who is God himself. We are his guests. And the only appropriate, a fitting response to the God who is overall, supreme overall, rules and reigns, Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of heaven, the only a fitting response greeting is blessed be God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship you. We acclaim you. We honor you. We praise you. We bless you. That's the fitting response. So that begins the service. And this acclamation can be found all throughout Scripture. If you look at the Psalter, which are the 150 Psalms, you know, the, 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 the hymn book for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, it's divided up into five sections. The first section is 1 through uh, Psalm 42. The second section or book is 42 through 72. Uh, then 72 through 89. 90 through 106. And then the last book or section is 107 through 150. What's fascinating is that, that what concludes each one of those sections is praise be to God, or blessed be God. When all has been said and done, when all has been revealed in terms of who God is and what he's done, the only fitting response is blessed be God. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we, we see in that great book, not only a declaration of who God is, but the supremacy of Christ and what he's done. It says that he's the heir of all things and that he made the universe, chapter one, verse two. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He sustains all things by his word. After purifying us from sin, Jesus sat down in all the majesty of heaven. Jesus is superior to the angels, and all the angels worship Jesus. He is the supremacy above all things. His throne lasts forever. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of his hands. All God's enemies are under the feet of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 13. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He shared in our humanity in order to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is the faithful high priest in service to God. God is all-knowing, all-seeing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus is forever making intercession for us. 
God's sovereign purposes are unchanging. Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, 726. Jesus is the mediator of a superior covenant, 8, verse 6. He forgives the wickedness and writes his law on our hearts. He brings salvation, chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus is and has made the perfect sacrifice so that our sins he will remember no more. Supremacy of Christ, that God rules and reigns over all things. And then you get to the end of Hebrews, and again, the only fitting response to how God has revealed himself in Scripture and in creation, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, therefore, in light of all of these things, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. To put it another way, blessed be God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. That's why we begin the service. We declare out of the gate, what is the purpose of our gathering? You know, some greetings within a worship service is, hey, how you doing? The beginning of this service is, God is in this place. Blessed are you, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's two implications with the acclamation and um, what it says at the very beginning of the service. There's two implications. The first, the first thing that is significant for us is because it's the first thing, the first thing that we do is we bless God for who he is before we receive the forgiveness at the confession, before we pray and receive his blessings, before we extend peace to one another and receive his shalom, before we come forward to receive the bread and the wine and are filled with him, before we do all of those things, the first thing that we do is that we bless God. That what is, supersedes all things is not recognizing the usefulness of God, but the supremacy and the beauty of God. Before we look to his hand, we look to his being. Who is he? He's God. And we're going to begin there. That's the starting point. In the words of Tim Keller, we see him beautiful before we see him useful. And here's the ironic thing. When we see God as beautiful, there's nothing more useful. But we see him as sovereign above all things. To illustrate, here you have two people that are in a business relationship. They don't like each other, but they make a lot of money. They have a meeting. Why do they get together? To strategize, to discuss outcomes. What are our goals for this year? What are our key performance indicators? What is our strategies? What are our objectives? Our rally cry? What is the thing that we can do together that will make us a lot of money? We may not like each other, but that's not the purpose of this meeting. Our purpose is to make money. So what is the objective? Okay. Second situation. Here is a couple that are madly in love with each other, and they can't wait to get married. They go out on a date. This is a conversation that they probably won't have. All right, what are our key performance indicators? Why are we going on on this date? What are the outcomes? What are our goals? Objectives? What's the rally cry here? Let's, let's talk about strategies. What are we doing here? What's the, the point is not to get something out of the relationship. The point is just to be in the relationship. You're not looking for a gift from the person. You just want the person. And so it is with our relationship with God. Before we get into the rest of the service, what we say is, as God, we see, you, we see you as beautiful. We see you as supreme. We see you as as you are. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and bless your kingdom now and forevermore. 
One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the first implication of the, of the acclamation, is that we see him as beautiful more than we see him as useful. And again, there's nothing more useful than that. Second implication, and it comes out of that, and that is that we seek first the kingdom of God, allowing all other things to be added. I can't think of a more important implication in a world that is just vying for our attention, trying to distract us with experiences, with little luxuries and hobbies, with all of the things that are going on inside of our culture. There's all of these distractions that want to pull our attention away from a relationship with God, with the thing that's most important in our life, which is our relationship with God. And the more that we are distracted by the things of this world, it will not only impact our worship, but because it impacts our worship, it will also impact our formation. Ronald Rollheiser says, he says in his book, we are habitually self-absorbed by heartaches and headaches and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside and around us. For every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have against God depth and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. In the midst of all of the distractions, we say prophetically as the people of God, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to let these distractions pull away the ultimate affection of my heart and what is ultimately most important. Short-term memory. If, if I was to throw up on the screen a number, a phone number, and I gave you 30 seconds to memorize the phone number, the likelihood that after like maybe another 30 seconds or a minute, if I asked you again, what was that number? The likelihood that most people would be able to remember that number is high. However, if I ask you five days from now, what was the number? Unless you had a photographic memory, most people would not remember the number. Now, you are madly in love with somebody. You desperately want to date them. You put their phone number up on the screen. Give you 30 seconds to remember it. You're not only going to remember, I ask you five days from now, what is the number? You say, I'll tell you what the number is. <laughs> you know what the number is. Because what you've done is you've attached meaning to information. That's why you're able to remember. That's why it takes up a part of not only your mind, but also your heart. We live in a world that we are not only bombarded with information, but the people that it's coming from, they are screaming about the importance of this information. Everybody's trying to ascribe ultimate meaning to the things that are coming our way. And it's dividing our hearts. I, uh, when I work out at Chews, I'm on the, the stair stepper because I can't run anymore. I'm 50. But as I'm, <laughs> as I'm on the stair stepper, I kid you not, there are 10 TV screens right in front of me. And every one of those TV screens is on a different station, and they're telling me what's the most important thing on planet Earth. 
And then they're trying to ascribe meaning to it. You gotta know this. You gotta be attentive to this. And if we are, if we're not careful, what happens is, is all of that information that's ascribed meaning attaches itself to our mind and to our heart, and it divides our heart. And Jesus is no longer ultimate in our life. And in the midst of all of that information, what we say in this world that's trying to divide our affections, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. That's why this acclamation is so important. Now, that's the first part. The second part is the prayer of purity. The only fitting response when we come into the presence of a holy God as sinners, the only appropriate response is the prayer of purity. And the prayer of purity, we say it every Sunday, and it goes, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. Now, that's a scary thought. If you think about a transparency machine and all of the blemishes that are on the screen get flashed up on the big screen for everybody to see, imagine that within our hearts. No secrets are hid. Everything's just put out on the screen. That's what the scriptures say about our hearts in regards to how God sees us. He sees all things. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of the one whom we must give an account. All hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, because that's what we need before a holy God. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. How? By the inspiration of your spirit. Because we're, 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 we're deceptively wicked above all things. Like our heart, we can't judge our hearts, but there is one that can, and that's the Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. How can we perfectly love God and worthily magnify his holy name? The only way is through Christ our Lord. That prayer comes from Psalm 51, when after Nathan confronted King David, King David writes in Psalm 51, verses 12 through, uh, 10 through 12, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's our response after we give the acclamation. Blessed be God, almighty God, to you all hearts are open. Now, everybody, need, we all need this prayer. We all need to be praying this. Now, for some who justify self and for some who are self-condemned, but regardless of what camp you fall in or where you gravitate to, this prayer addresses both situations because the tendency of the human heart, the sinful heart, is to either come before the Lord self-justifying, the reason why I'm here is because of what I've done, or self-condemning, I'm not worthy and so I can't even accept the good gift, the free gift that God has given me. First, the implication is that it addresses the person that is self-justified. That the reason why I have the ability to come into the presence of a holy God is because of the good things that are inside of me, the things that I've done. Self-justification. And in the United States, this is what we're prone to because we like to focus on strengths, not weaknesses. How many people know your strengths finder? Come on, show of hands. Be bold. How many people, come on, confession. How many people know your strengths finder? Okay, probably about maybe half the room. Here's some of mine. I'm futuristic. <laughs> I'm futuristic. Okay. There's also a shadow side, by the way. Or maybe I'm just being self-righteous. I don't know. Okay, here. Futuristic, which means I've never met a vision that I didn't like. Activator. I don't care about how much. If I just get a little bit of information, it's enough for me to act. 
positivity, it'll all work out even if, if it's not. <laughs> Focus and then belief, you know? So strength, we, we like to go towards our strengths. That's what we like to highlight. But each one of those has a shadow side. I'm futuristic, which means I have a hard time being present in the moment. And we bring that into the worship experience. We bring it into our formation. The reason why I can come before a holy God is because of the good things that I've done. One of the, one of the things that we did as a leadership team, actually for our whole staff, is we went through this thing by Patrick Lencioni called The Working Genius. And it really, it's, it's, it's brilliant. He basically identifies six different parts that are absolutely necessary in order to get good work done. And he divides it up and every person has two working geniuses. So whether it's um, uh, wonder or invention or discernment, galvanizer, or you also have uh, the enabler and then enable to get, you know, get the work started and then also tenacity. So you have each one of those and then you're able to really get good work done. But the focus was on your working genius, not on your working frustration. And if we're not careful, we focus so much on our strengths that we don't realize that as our hearts are open, that we desperately need a savior because we are broken and we're sinful and that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Ruth Haley Barton says, she says, approaches to formation and to worship that focus only on those places where we are fairly well along can actually become a defense mechanism for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. Yeah, I may be rude, but at least I give to the church. I'm going to focus on that. No, but you're rude. I may be prideful, but I also help people out. Yeah, but you're also prideful. If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, and as we pray the prayer, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, we recognize that we are a mixed bag, and we desperately need a Savior to save us and to redeem us because we are not worthy to come before a holy God. Now, let me talk about my own industry People in my industry, the people that I've heard about and seen, people do not fall because of their strengths, but because of their secret sins that grow in the dark. It's because they focus on their strengths that their heart became cold and dark. They held on to those secrets because they didn't want to make those known. And what the prayer of purity says is that we all need a savior. And we can't justify ourselves. We come before a holy God only based on the merit of Jesus, not the merit of my works or your works. So it addresses the self-justified, but it also addresses the self-condemned. Because notice, we come before the Lord based on the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there might be some people here this morning who you are wondering if you can boldly approach his throne room of grace. Because there's, you're under this cloud of condemnation, guilt, and shame. And what the prayer of purity says is, is that God knows everything in your heart and still welcomes you home. That you can boldly approach his throne room of grace because of the love and the merit and the work of Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody who was in, um, he's walked with the Lord for a number of years. And he, he mentioned that he was in bondage to a particular sin for decades and he'll never let anybody know about it because secrets were scary in his family. And he got to the point in his life where he eventually shared that with somebody else. And that person walked with him. And as a result of that walking with him, that, that, bond, that bond was broken in the name of Jesus. And he experienced freedom. But what he said is, is that the prayer of purity is one of his most favorite parts of the service 
Because during that time where he was just in bondage, he also knew that it wasn't just that part, that the Holy Spirit knew other parts as well, that, that he, wasn't just, he wasn't identified with that. There was also some other things that the Lord was doing in his heart that had healed. So it wasn't just this, but it was also that. So how do you make sense of it? And he didn't know how to put it into words. So he was living under bondage because he didn't know how to describe it, and he was under bondage because he had a secret sin. But as soon as that secret sin was broken, he was able to come before the Lord, praying the prayer of purity, experiencing the freedom, knowing that two things are happening. One, he doesn't have to figure it all out because the Holy Spirit is inside of him. And two, that bond has been broken in the name of Jesus because there is no secret that is hid. And he experienced freedom. It's his favorite part of the entire service. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering if you can boldly approach the throne room of grace on your own merit, no. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, yes. He sees you all the way through. Sees your secret sins. Knows the things that are inside of your heart. And he says, bring those to me. I've welcomed you home. Boldly approach his throne room of grace. Tim Keller says, listen, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we even dare believe. And the Lord sees it all. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared, ever dared hope. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what the prayer of purity declares. That we can boldly approach his throne room of grace not self-justified, not self-condemned, but under the blood of Christ and what he's done on the cross. This is a fitting way to respond and begin the service. Blessed be God and almighty God, you all, you all hearts are open, all desires known. So we're gonna end by praying the prayer of purity together. And we're gonna ask the Lord to bring his freedom, to bring his peace and to welcome us home as the sons and daughters so that when we come forward to receive, we know that we can boldly approach his throne room of grace based upon what he's done. I'd ask you to extend your hands, maybe put them on your lap, is an outward posture of surrender. And now let's pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord.